I just come back to the startling and extraordinary thing that we're embedded in a developmental process that only completes successfully if we wake up to the nature of the process we're embedded in and intentionally go out and make sure it completes successfully. Um, the, the, that realization changes everything about being a human being. It answers you know, the most fundamental and biggest existential question of all, what should we do with our life? How should we live? John Stewart is an Australian evolutionary theorist and a core member of the Evolution, Complexity and Cognition Research Group at the Free University of Brussels. Uh, John Stewart has come up with an incredibly original framework of, for evolutionary theory. Uh, and let me just flag two components of it here. Uh, so one, he sees a directionality in evolution. Uh, now, directionality is an idea that's been sort of in and out of favor in the history of the field for, for decades. Uh, in the previous few decades, it's been sort of out of favor. But John Stewart pr proposes a very original and idiosyncratic view of directionality. Uh, so it's not at all teleological or, or anything else you would expect. Um, second, he sees evolutionary dynamics as being applicable at different scales. So right down to the level of, of sort of simple organisms to complex multicellular organisms to complex human societies. And the interesting thing here is that you can use that framework then to make sort of judgments about how human human complex human society functions and where it might be going or where it ought to go. Um, now, I admit that this one is a lot less structured than these interviews usually are. Uh, not to say that this channel is known for structure, uh, but when you're dealing with complexity, uh, complexity as a subject, this is kind of part for the course. Uh, so if you if you stick through sort of the zigzag here, uh, I think I think a lot is learned. Um, this is my conversation with John Stewart. So I think a good place to start would be to outline the evolutionary worldview that you've been developing. The very short version is, is that, uh, that evolution heads in a particular direction. Uh, evolution's heading somewhere. Uh, you know, it's not some random process that's, that's has no relevance to humanity. So it's headed somewhere and but perhaps the most surprising and significant thing about a proper understanding of the big scale evolutionary processes that have shaped life on Earth and that will shape humanity in the future, the most surprising and extraordinary thing is that there's a role for humanity individually and collectively in driving the process forward from here. Um, so that's the way in which you know the big claim I make is that a, an, a, an adequate evolutionary worldview can provide meaning and purpose for human existence individually and collectively and the way it does that uh, is that there is a role for humanity the process will only succeed on this planet um, if if sufficient human beings wake up to the nature of the process that we're embedded in and use that understanding to guide our future evolution Right. So just before we go into that, um, when you say he evolution is heading somewhere, I know you don't mean it teleologically. There isn't some 
preordained fate for evolution, but you also don't mean it in the sense where people usually mean it, where they just say it's getting more complex and there's just greater orchestration. So we're, we're between yeah. that. I, I, hate, I hate the notion that, it's, that uh, it's adequate to say that, you know, evolution is getting more complex. Um, yeah, that's almost as, as vacuous as saying that everything is connected. Yeah, because um, yeah, the, the, the key thing about, and, and everything in, a, in some senses is connected, but the key issue is, if you want to understand reality, is how is it connected? Yeah, because the way it's connected makes an enormous difference. So similar, similarly, the notion that, you know, uh, evolution is headed in the direction of increasing complexity, um, you know, doesn't tell us much at all. It's, it's, it's you know, almost empty. The critical issue is how does it become more complex? In what ways is it becoming more complex? And it's only when you understand that, it's only when you, you know, when evolutionary theory becomes adequate enough to identify the nature of the increase in complexity uh, and what it entails. It's only when evolutionary theory becomes that sophisticated that it can become meaningful for uh, human beings. So the, you know, just to give an example, if, if the, uh, you know, if the direction is in, towards increasing complexity, um, then what sort of injunctions can, you can human beings derive from that? That we should go forth, we should go forth and make greater complexity. You know, I mean, what does that tell us? Almost nothing. Um, so, uh, so but, it, but it's a common intuition. So, so broadly speaking, Broadly, and this is broadly speaking, um, over the last, uh, you know, 70 years, uh, directionality in evolution has been out of favour in, in evolution science. Um, the, you know, luminaries like Stephen Jay Gould have mounted substantial arguments that there's, that there's no direction to evolution. Although in his, in his, at the, towards the end of the book, he says, well, there is direction in human evolution, which is interesting that he, he does that. But um, so the notion that evolution has a direction has been on the nose. Um, however, many, many evolutionary scientists believe in this vague notion that things are becoming more complex. And Stephen Jay Girl said, well, you know, that's a passive trend, not a causally driven trend, because if you start off with minimal complexity, if you start off with, you know, single cells, then the only way they can evolve is by getting more complex. So, so if you start off at the left, he called it the left wall, you know, if you graph it, the left wall of complexity, there's only one way to go, and that's to, to explore possibility space, you know, towards increasing complexity. Um, but yeah, coming back to your, your point, which is you know, a key issue, uh, no, nothing I'm saying depends upon a teleological model, a teleological theory. Um, so I'm not at all suggesting that, that there is some uh, pull from the future. Um, Tehard de Chardian pull from the future, you know, uh, or an inevitability, you know, uh, where the end determines the uh, you know, what leads up to the end. So it's, it's first and foremost, uh, it meets the test of being uh, a theory 
that is causally driven. So, um, so, and yeah, I've gone to great pains to demonstrate that in, in a number of papers published in international peer-reviewed science journals. I've gone to great pains to demonstrate that, that to identify the causal micro foundations that drive this process, uh, that drive this process forward. Uh, so you can then use language like you identify attractors in, in, uh, in uh, possibility space that you know, attract this process, but, but that shouldn't be confused with a, uh, a teleological perspective. Uh, basically, you know, a teleological perspective um, to be, uh, if it were true, it would overthrow the laws of physics and so on, because it would introduce new forces into the universe and so on. And no, uh, this uh, worldview that I'm developing doesn't depend on that. Yeah. So then, like the idea of the idea that things are just getting more complex, is it helpful in the sense that you can roughly estimate certain levels of organization that do have greater complexity than the level below them? I think we're just getting into emergence arguments here, but yeah, that seems like the minimum way to put it that it's still not vacuous. There's, there's books being written, uh, there's edited volumes, for example, uh, that address the issue of how you measure complexity. Right. Um, and yeah, there's metrics and so on. And, and people who uh, want to be seen to be true scientists, um, you know, they love <laughs> developing metrics <laughs> and so on um, and playing in that pond because, it, you know, that's, it looks like science. You, if you mathematise things, then, it, you know, it's more serious. But the most interesting things in, in the world can't be mathematised. I, I basically agree with, you know, probably the guy will be seen as the greatest evolutionary scientist of the 20th century eventually, a guy called Stanley Salte, uh, who's, who says that if something is, uh, is sufficiently simple to be able to be mathematised, then it's not complex enough to be interesting. And basically, you know, without going too far off the, the tangent already, the the, the things that matter most to human beings uh, in this world, in our, in our daily lives and so on, like our political systems and their impacts on individuals and collectives, social systems, uh, psychological you know, phenomenon and so on, nearly, they haven't been mathematised successfully. Uh, they, the the uh, processes of science that, that have been so successful in dealing with physical systems have failed miserably, you know, when it comes to complex phenomena and social systems and political systems and so on. Uh, I mean, there's no model that, you know, that get it, gets anywhere near predicting, you know, who the next president of the US will be or, or whatever. <laughs> None of the touted grand theories of everything go anywhere near, you know, anywhere near dealing with what matters basically in our day-to-day in our -day lives. Um, so, and, and so what, what science has done, you know, is sit back on the sidelines and, and point it at the social scientists, you know, which are basically humanities, not, they're not science orientated, they're, they're, so I, C.P. Snow, um, you know, talked about the twin cultures and he pointed out that there's fundamental differences between <clears throat> humanities 
investigators and science investigators, and I'd go further without getting into it, but the, the psychological differences uh, and so on. But the, so science sits back and says, you know, you're not scientific. You know, you, you, uh, they don't see the great irony that, that the scientific method when used, when attempted to be used in the humanities doesn't succeed. It hasn't produced um, good stuff. I mean, I mean, just to add that to that as well, there's pretty good historical record of when uh, like irregular mathematization of a field is attempted, for example, uh, based dogmatically, not not based on actual principles you can find is disastrous. There's tons of literature on that being done in economics, for example, um, which is different from sciences that actually work on first principles because... Yeah, so, so I mean, economics is interesting because it's been, you know, it's heavily mathematized, um, but... But it's also very easily criticisable from a scientific perspective, and, and arguably it hasn't, um, you know, it hasn't produced a lot of insights about economics. Um, I mean, the, the classic example, and this this, feed, you know, feeds back into this issue of complex phenomenon, and 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 you know, and the fundamental issue of of you know, uh, science science's failure to adequately deal with it. Um, the uh, you know when it new, I always smile when I read a newspaper article uh, which uh, specifies confidently why the uh, share market you know increased significantly yesterday, and it'll provide a number of reasons and analysis. It can't apply those reasons to predict what's going to happen to the share market tomorrow. You know it's. <laughs> It's only in respect. It's only in retrospect. It's like the clever hands, the trained horse uh, phenomenon. But and that's not to say that economics is wrong about everything. Like the rational actor model is a very solid model, and it makes some really good predictions. But that's just to say that there is this whole space of stuff that should be in the domain of economics that isn't uh, that the methods aren't up to the task. To that's right, because phenomenon is too complex and and. Yeah, I'd like to get into that eventually. You know what? So, so I, I talk about. Um, yeah, there are different cognitive levels in human beings. That's what Piaget showed in relation to uh, the development of of children. Uh, but there's a, a field post Piaget and uh, adult development uh, that shows that adults have uh, can develop certainly have the potential to develop and so on through levels beyond the Piagetian levels. And the, there's, you know, the popularization of, of that sort of developmental model is a thing called spiral dynamics, um, a color-coded system. Um, and I've never met anyone who, it's very easy to criticize, you know, any grand scheme that invents new categories and, and labels and so on, because it won't be exact, it'll be approximations, you know, particularly when it's dealing with something like human beings. So it's very easy to criticise uh, spiral dynamics, but I've never met anyone who's been introduced to it who hasn't found it extraordinarily useful in understanding different categories of human beings. Uh, you know, for example, once you understand spiral dynamics, you immediately know who, you know, the kind of people who will vote for Donald Trump. Uh, um, they're, you know, they're at a certain level of development. 
and so on. So they're actually at the, the pre-modern level, uh, the, the mod, which is color-coded blue in spiral dynamics, but, but the modern level, which gave rise to you know, current science, mainstream science, um, is uh, the, uh, I call that first enlightenment thinking or first enlightenment science. So there is the, you know, that sort of suggests there is, there will be, needs to be a second enlightenment and second enlightenment thinking, um, you know, will be quite different to first enlightenment thinking. It'll be, you know, at a higher level of development. So the, and broadly speaking, uh, without getting into it now, because you've raised some very important questions that I want to get back to. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's fun. It's, uh, it's, because these things are all interconnected. I mean, that's fundamental nature of complex systems that they're all interconnected and you can't deal with something without pulling threads that, you know, <laughs> that are connected to other things. Um, so uh, basically you need, you need a level of cognition that is able to deal with and model, mentally model and understand complex phenomena. And the first enlightenment thinking, reductionist, linear logical thinking, uh, and so on, is only good at understanding those parts of reality that are relatively mechanistic or, or can be reasonably approximated by mechanistic models. And complex phenomenon can't be. You know, you can't think through mechanistically um, complex phenomenon, an ecosystem, a social system, political systems and, and so on. Um, because, uh, you know, when I use, you know, the, um, the analogy, the metaphor of, of mechanism, what a, what a machine fundamentally is, and it's built by this human mind that is at the first enlightenment level, the mechanistic level, what a machine is, is, is something that's decomposable into parts and you can follow through the interactions of the parts, think it through, in a linear way in your mind, cause and effect, and see how the machine operates. Now, walk out into any ecosystem you find, or walk into this discussion about complex phenomenon, <laughs> uh, or look at social systems, and you can't, they're not machine-like, you know, you can't think through the parts, you'll be overwhelmed by complexity, overwhelmed by uh, you know, the, the number of interacting parts, you won't be able to keep track of them. So you need an, a, a higher level of cognition that's been very rare amongst human beings but needs to spread if we're to understand complex phenomenon, including if we're to, under, if we're to understand the, the evolutionary worldview. So this, this is the catch-22, that the evolutionary worldview is only understandable by second enlightenment thinking what I call metasystemic thinking, because it's, it deals fundamentally with complex phenomenon at all scales interacting together and so on. Uh, so coming back to, uh, you talked about, you talked about complexity um, and the ability, you know, the, the notion of complexity and looking at various levels of complexity, levels of organization and so on. So, so I, I say, well, you know, Complexity isn't very useful. Uh, it's the form of complexity that matters. What is the form of complexity? And that's what my papers set out to identify. Um, so I'll just, I'll just, 
as succinctly as I can indicate um, how this works. So, so the fundamental notion is this, um, that so you consider uh, you're an agent-based conception, an agent-based model where you have interacting entities competing together. And those interacting entities may be simple single cells, complex cells, multicellular organisms, human beings, human tribes, human nation states. So this, this is a very general formulation that indicates a dynamic, a determinative dynamic that's unfolding at every level of entities. Um, so these entities are competing and in an unstructured population of entities competing with each other, you know, in an evolutionary dynamic, then cooperators don't succeed. Cooperators um, get selected out. Uh, there's a cooperation barrier that, you know, there's various ways of describing it, but there's, there's an impediment to the emergence of cooperation. And this is despite the fact uh, that entities cooperating together always have the potential to outcompete isolated individuals. Because entities cooperating together who coordinate their behaviour fundamentally have greater power. So they're more, they're more competitive, they have more command over resources, they can achieve things that, that individuals can't. And you see that in, in ape societies where eventually, you know, uh, some apes get together and, and form a coalition. You see it continually in human societies where, um, you know, coordinated groups outcompete individuals and can achieve things they can never do. And it's, it's because coordination involved and, and cooperation enables division of labour, specialisation and so on. So each individual doesn't have to be a jack of all trades any longer. It can specialise and coordinate with others to form a, a whole, um, you know, that, that encompasses uh, and integrates the specialisation. Um, so you have this, so cooperation is very difficult to evolve. So this applies at every level, including the human level, you know, which we're most familiar with. Um, it, it's, cooperation is very successful, but it's, but there's this cooperation barrier. So just to, you know, to, hone in on this cooperation barrier a bit more uh, to make it more familiar. Um, cooperation involves using some of your resources to uh, contribute to a group effort or assist others or whatever to be alt altruistic. So alt altruistic behaviour involves using some of your resources that you could have used for your own reproduction and evolutionary success. Um, it's using that to achieve some cooperative outcome, but there's no guarantee you'll capture the benefits of that cooperation. Uh, and human beings, you know, we've got terms for all this because this dynamic's fundamental to every living organism and particularly, you know, ones that form groups like humans, like we, you know, we, we talk about, you know, being treated like a sucker when we, you know, are altruistic, but don't get anything in return. Um, our, our language is riddled with, with um, ways of describing, you know, of describing, we're, we're, we're smart cooperators to an extent. So the, but more significantly, the reason why individuals don't capture the benefits of their cooperation is because there are free riders. So this free rider problem happens from single cells, multicellular organisms, human beings, happening now with nation states. 
possibly leading to the destruction of you know, human civilization. It's the same dynamic, the same evolutionary dynamic that's applied at every level, impeded cooperation, uh, fueled destructive competition. So the, the, the free riders love cooperators. You know, for a free rider, there is nothing more joyful in its day than to discover cooperators, to discover altruists, because it takes their benefits and gives nothing in return. So, the, so free riders succeed in evolutionary terms, uh, cooperators, in particularly altruistic cooperators, fail. Cooperation fails, cooperation does not occur, despite the fact that cooperation potentially cooperative groups can outcompete individuals. So the, the question is, how does cooperation evolve? How does it overcome this barrier? Um, and how does, it, how does it overcome the barrier sufficiently to produce extraordinary cooperatives like our bodies, like who we are? Because each of us is a cooperative galaxy of 10 trillion cells. And each of those cells doesn't intend to be cooperative. It doesn't know us. It doesn't know who we are and what we do. Yet, that's right. Yet they're, they're orchestrated uh, by the way our body is organised to cooperate together uh, only by following their own individual interests. So individual cells follow their own interests to... to um, uh, and in following their own interests, they serve the interests of the, the whole, which is a human being. Uh, and they produce these extraordinary things like talking and walking and falling in love and so on, things that they that are utterly inconceivable to them. So how so how you know has evolution overcome the cooperation barrier, produced these extraordinary cooperative uh, groups? Um, that's you know the fundamental issue. So, you know, games theory is it a complete industry. So I, I talked before about, you know, the allure to um, first enlightenment science of mathematizing stuff. Um, you know, the game series produced an industry, you know, because it's mathematized. It creates the illusion of, um, you know, precision, produces, you know, rigorous, robust models. However, which you know, basically, uh, so largely have, have produced trivia. They've, they, its main function is to demonstrate the difficulty of, of, <laughs> of achieving cooperation. So, so that's useful, but it's you know, the resources could have been better spent elsewhere. You know, in, in my view. But uh, so the so. There's no game theory hasn't come up with a general solution, but but there is but there is it has emerged from time to time an understanding. Well, probably with Hobbes first of all, with the Leviathan, um, that uh, human societies, which which despite you know all you know we uh, the news focuses on, us on conflict uh, within human societies. But, but the reality is human societies are extraordinary cooperatives, you know, where, you know, anything on your desk, you know, like a pen, has, is a result of an extraordinary cooperative enterprise where thousands of people have been involved in, you know, mining the, you know, the, 
the uh, mining the, the materials that produced a bit of metal in it and producing alloys and smelting it and you know and a pen you know it's people all over the planet what an extraordinary you know cooperative enterprise that is though, though it's rarely recognized um so the question is how do human societies organize that cooperative that cooperation comprehensively uh, hobbs and others basically talk about uh it's about power it's about the emergence of governance. Um, and the essence of governance is power or constraint. Most abstractly, you know, in my theories, I talk about the emergence of evolvable constraints. So what constraints do in a, in a human society, and they can be in the form of a king or a government or a, uh, you know, chief, a tribal chief. Uh, what emergent governance or power does in human societies, it has the capacity to farm the society. Uh, you can use various metaphors, farm the society, it exercises its power to uh, punish free riding. So in other words, ensure that free riding is no longer in the interests of members of the society. Uh, they can't come out in front any longer because they get punished. Uh, and also, it's can the power can be used to support cooperators so so an entity that was or a member of society that was previously an altruist who donated resources for the common good without getting anything in return you know the governance structure can allocate resources to the altruist so the altruist is no longer uh, an altruist uh, the altruist now it can be self-interested so and the, the general formulation of that sort of uh, um, structure of, of evolvable governance, which I call management, and I call this management theory, uh, because I've extended it from the human realm, where it's most obvious and analyzable and clear because we're, we're embedded in it. I've extended that to all other levels, because this is an all levels dynamic. Um, and it explains the origin of life. So, so the um, so in biochemistry, the analog is is DNA. Yeah, yeah. So, and this, this the so when when I first had these ideas, I remember the day, the hour, the place. Uh, I lived in Canberra, um, uh, Australia, and I was in my family room, and uh, and it hit me that the equivalence between global governance which needs to occur otherwise we're finished um, because global governance needs is needed to suppress free riding between nation states and, and and corporations and reward cooperators and so on you need management so i saw the equivalence in my mind it was like an image appears the equivalence between global governance uh, of the planet and dna in a cell, um, and a cell, a cell is, you know, global. It can be, it's evidence it, which can uh, punish free riding and support cooperation. Farm, farm the chemical constituents of a cell to coordinate them together into a coherent whole that can adapt and function as a whole. 
uh, that's what needs to happen at the you know the global level. That's the next great step in the evolution of life on Earth is the the hatching of a global entity. And if you stand back from it all uh, and see this process that you know first um, produce cooperation on the scale of a millionth of a metre, you know the first proto cells. Can't, you can't see them, they're so small. They were the first cooperatives, and then there were cooperatives of those cooperatives, and then cooperatives of those cooperatives, and so on. And eventually, where it, it can only end, uh, other than through destruction, <laughs> with, a, with a global uh, entity. And, the, and just as the, the cell you know, went through an identification process, and then complex cells, which were cooperatives of simple cells, went through an identification process. And then cooperatives of those complex cells formed organisms that go through an identification process. And this identification process is, the, is you know, the fulfilling the cooperative potential to become a coordinated cooperative composite entity that now acts and adapts and evolves as a whole, as an individual. So the that's that's so if you step back from this process, that's the trajectory of evolution. Um, and it, it and it's like a developmental process. It hatches, it hatches a global entity that then needs to go through an identification process if it, if it is then to participate, you know, in the interactions with other global entities. That have emerged elsewhere, and so on. Um, just you know, but but that's as difficult to imagine for many human beings as it is for cells in our body to imagine, you know, the love life of the the body that they contribute to and help orchestrate, and so on. Um, so bring, bringing that back to focus on this, the mechanism. So cooperation is beneficial advantageous in evolutionary terms, very difficult, however, to emerge because of the cooperation barrier, but governance, appropriate evolvable governance, um, can overcome the cooperation barrier by uh, preventing free riding uh, and uh, rewarding cooperation. So what effective governance does is achieve what, what, our, what happens with the cells in our bodies. The, you don't need altruism any longer. So the individual entities in a properly governed collective simply follow their own interests. So they can be self-interested. Uh, they, they don't have to know anything about the whole they're contributing to or anything else. So it's the old invisible hand in, um, in, in uh, yeah, market theory uh, but it's the it's the extension of it. So it's but but the invisible hand has many flaws because markets aren't properly governed. Um, and the and part of the reason why they're not properly governed is because uh, the 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 governance isn't constrained to align its interests with the interests of the society as a whole. Democracy is a vain attempt. In human societies, to try and constrain, uh, you know, the governance of markets. So, so, so to to have um, 
to fully you know, align the interests of individuals with the interests of human societies, you need properly governed markets and you need the governance itself to be governed in such a way that its interests are aligned with those of the whole. When you achieve that, you have what I, you know, I've referred to as the self-organising society. So in the, in the self-organising society, um, if individuals just follow their own interests, uh, then the good, the good will, will emerge. Um, so, in, and how, how I describe the function, governance achieves this, you know, there's various ways of describing it. I've tried various ways of describing it in order to get the, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, so it's aligning of interests, aligning interests, the interests of entities, but the, you know, the, the simplest term is consequence capture. So basically what, what governance does is reflect back onto the individuals in the collective, the consequences of their actions on the collective as a whole. So the, if, if, if an individual within a collective, a cell in your body, for example, does something to harm your body, then the governance will uh, reflect that back onto the individual cell and harm the cell. So it no longer is in its interest to harm the body. Similarly, if, some, if something does something beneficial for the collective, then the governance reflects back that benefit onto the individual. So it's in, it's in, it's, it's, it is in its interest to continue to do that. So a cancer cell in your body is a free rider um, and your body has all these mechanisms to make life uncomfortable for you know, cancer cells, for free riders. Um, and it's, uh, you know, and it misses. Uh, it misses every now and again and you know, we die. But the, but the reality is there's cancers, potentially cancerous cells emerge in every you know, instant in your body and, and they're being kept in check and so on. So the, so the key problem is governance. Like these principles of altruism, cooperation, barriers to cooperation, managers that punish free, lighter, free riders and identification apply at all scales from, from the first organisms to eukaryotes to complex human societies. But then something happens when you get to the level of complex human societies where there's, there's too little variation between them or governance structures just haven't lived up to the task where the process is, is sort of holding in your view? Well, that, yeah, that's, that's a critically important point because uh, everything changes. Uh, when you get near to the emergence of the global superorganism, because the, the pre-integrated the, the pre global system will have a, a small number of entities competing. So, so there are less than 200 nation states in the world today, unbelievably. Um, and, but there are major corporations that are you know, as powerful as nation states, so you'd add them in as well. They're competing you know, uh, and corrupting governments and, and, and so on. Um, so uh, so that's, that's what you have to, have to take into account. So, um, so yes, at lower levels, uh, where you have populations of millions of organisms, uh, the individuals competing with one another, then say you have the emergence of a, a proto-collective, uh, 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 which is the emergence of a manager who, and the managers always start by exploitation. So 
a powerful entity emerges, it has the power to, to rape and pillage, um, you know, like the British Empire did, um, rape and pillage the world, set up its colonies in Canada, Australia, you know, rape and pillage the, the people who previously owned those countries. In any event, uh, Genghis Khan, you know, and, and the trajectory of the, the extraordinary emergence of, of um, uh, you know, of the, the uh, Mongol empires illustrates this perfectly. So, so first of all, you get power and that power will be used in the interests of the, the entities that are powerful. They'll take what they uh, take what they can uh, for their own interests, and, and that'll boost their reproduction, so they succeed in evolutionary terms. But the the a fundamental change occurs when a powerful entity emerges that can farm uh, a group of of smaller scale entities over which it has power, uh, and by farming them and I'm speaking metaphorically there, but by farming them, it can extract an ongoing stream of benefits uh, from that collective, rather than just rape and pillage at once. So Genghis Khan raped and pillaged once, and he actually literally raped and, and pillaged on all accounts, um, as you would if you were powerful and, and you hadn't found a better way. But his sons, you know, like Genghis Khan, uh, Oh, sorry, um, Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan farmed China and was a great ruler. So he, he settled, you know, he, um, instead of raping, pillaging, moving on, finding someone else to rape and pillage and so on. And particularly that got hard to find someone who his father hadn't already raped and pillaged. Um, so he, he discovered that it was far more effective, far more in his interests, because he could, could harvest a stream of ongoing benefits, you know, to, to settle down and, and govern China. And on all accounts, you know, he learned uh, how to govern it in a way that maximised the stream of benefits that could be extracted from China. And, and the way you do that, you know, this because there's this, this enormous untapped potential. So when you start farming clumsily and, and so on, um, yeah, there, you can get some benefits, but the, the extraordinary potential is, is that if you farm in a way that promotes cooperation between the entities that you're farming, then it, the, the entities you're farming become far more productive as a collective. And so I, I use the farming um, you know, metaphor because it, it is very useful here because you can see uh, human farming techniques that, that actually, you know, follow this trajectory as well and eventually, uh, you know, promote cooperation between, you know, they initially create a monoculture, you know, often and just maximise the particular thing they're trying to produce, whether it's sheep or corn or whatever it is. Um, but then more sophisticated farming techniques can actually create a, a collective out of what's been farmed and promote useful interactions between the entities that have been farmed and thereby maximise the profitability. So that, that's the trajectory. So the, and when you're moving into this farming phase, you know, the issue is, well, what's stopping just exploitation? You know, what's, what's stopping the, 
degeneration back into just exploitation and the use of power rather than to use it to promote cooperation? And the answer is competition. So if you've got a population of a million managed collectives competing with one another, you know, classic evolutionary arrangement with natural selection applying, then the, uh, the only way to succeed as if you're a manager of collectives is to make your management most effective, to make your managed system most productive. So the, the evolutionary dynamic that selects out inferior managers, managers that don't promote effective cooperation maximally, the, the evolutionary dynamic, dynamic that selects them out, uh, in effect, aligns the interests of management managers with the interests of the, the whole. So that dynamic, you know, uh, basically ruled um, in the evolution of, during the evolution of life on this planet, from you know these millionth of a meter little cooperatives, through the stepwise formation of high of high level cooperatives and them forming higher level cooperatives and so on. That dynamic drove the process. That's the causal, I basically outlined the causal micro foundations of this trajectory. And it's got nothing to do with, you know, any teleology, obviously. Um, that's evident from, you know, the description. Um, so that dynamic operated up till the emergence of, um, you know, prob probably human tribes, you know, because, uh, tribes are small scale, so there are thousands and thousands of tribes of, you know, Australian Aborigines competing with one another, similarly in, you know, in the Americas with the American Indians. Um, so, so if you look at that whole process, you can say, well, it was driven unconsciously. There was no intention anywhere along the line to produce these outcomes. Uh, the, you know, there was no uh, intentional evolution, no conscious evolution. Uh, it was just driven by these dynamics. However, when you get to, uh, you know, when you start getting these very large scale cooperatives forming uh, so that you don't get many of them competing with one another in the, in the whole world, then you lose that uh, selection between competing societies that keeps the managers honest that keeps their interests aligned with the interests of the, um, the society. Yeah. So, so that's, so I, I said, uh, when we started the discussion that, you know, the extraordinary thing, and it is extraordinary once it, you know, fully sinks into people, light bulbs go on, this extraordinary thing that this process, which is a developmental process that produces the hatching of a, a global entity. Uh, it goes automatically up to a certain point. Then it only completes uh, if it's done intentionally and consciously. So it only completes if, if the conscious entities that emerge on the planet that are forming these large-scale organisations, if they wake up to the nature of the process, uh, if they wake up to what has to be done to complete the process, which is to cause the emergence of the global entity. And then, most importantly, because that could, you can imagine in a planet that could be stumbled upon. 
you know, just a global governance could be stumbled upon. Um, we nearly stumbled upon it uh, in, at the end of the First World War and the Second World War. There was the League of Nations and the United Nations, but both of them were sabotaged, as you would expect, by the dominant powers in the world. Because why would the United States of America subject itself to a higher level of governance that would interfere with its raping and pillaging? So, so it, and yeah, the history books have been, well, no, not the history, well, there are histories that people have written that demonstrate, you know, what happened and how it was sabotaged and, and so on. And, you know, Russia was complicit in that because they didn't want to be constrained. Um, raping and pillaging, you know, seems like the best option. Um, until you see the bigger, bigger dynamic, you know, where eventually if we're to participate, we, as in, if the emergence, if the emergent entity on this planet is to participate effectively in the in the future evolution of life in the universe, if we're not to be stillborn, uh, then we have to identify, act as a coordinated whole, adapt for the outside future. You know, in other words, so so far humanity human societies basically have developed a metabolism, you know, which is the economic system. Uh, they haven't, they've been, they've hardly developed so far the capacity to adapt to the outside future, which is the ability of an organism, you know, to interact with other organisms outside it, to have plans, to have future visions and, and so on. So that happens a little bit during wars, you know, when, societies can act for the outside future. So adapting for the outside future is, is a term uh, used by Stafford Beer, who was the great, uh, a great British cybernetician. Um, uh, and he talked about adaptation to the inside now, which is what goes on in your metabolism inside a cell, inside a society, and adaptation to the outside future and he looks at how you organise that adaptation, that, that capacity to adapt to the outside future. Um, so that, that science of how you build adaptation to the outside future is part of the intentional science that needs to guide you know, what we do. And when, when we can adapt to the outside future and adapt as a coherent whole, then the other organisms uh, you know, that have, that have developed and emerged elsewhere in this universe that is, I mean, obviously full of life, um, then they'll have someone to interact with. So at the moment, you know, imagine, imagine you're a global entity that's emerged on another planet. You can adapt to the outside future. You know, you can have coherent plans and so on. Uh, and you've been through this bottleneck, you know, where you've nearly destroyed your planet, but global governance has, has overcome that and the formation of the entity has overcome that, um, you, you wouldn't interfere with what's going on on this planet because they, these painful processes that could lead to our destruction are equally the processes that, uh, that have the potential to call into existence uh, a global governance system and, and so on. So you need, the, these are the birth pains that impel 
um, the uh, the emergence of the birth of the of the global system. So on other planets, they won't. Um, uh, and when we become a global entity, we won't interfere. It'll be like humans trying to talk to and interfere in the development of a chicken egg. Uh, we wouldn't. We wouldn't have a clue. It's too complex process, and we'd only impede the development. Yeah, any clumsy. So to these entities, these that have already reached this level, um, we're schizophrenic. There's no one to talk to. There isn't an entity on this planet. You know, what would they do? Ring up Donald Trump? No, that's a cheap shot. But the... <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> so, um, so this, so we, I come back to this extraordinary thing that this process only completes uh, if the sentient organisms that emerge on the planet that are forming these large-scale collectives, if they wake up to the nature of the evolutionary process that will determine their future, and they use an understanding of that, of that evolutionary process to guide intentionally their own evolution. Right. right. So there's there's these two these two problems here, or these two perspectives. One is global governance and all the questions around that, and then the other is the intentionality of the individual organisms, uh, the, the cognitive states, the second life been thinking, meta, uh, uh, meta structures, or uh, what sometimes is called the consciousness building. Uh, the focus on that second one, where, where in say cognitive science today are the schematizations that might be helpful today? Do you think there is some hope? Yeah, that's that's the critical issue. So, so. You know, I see myself as an evolutionary activist. So an evolutionary activist is someone who's woken up to the big picture and sees they have a role, you know, in, in driving that, in actualising that big picture in a, in a desirable way um, and looks at, you know, leverage points in the world. You know, what can I do to, um, to you know, uh, Drive, help drive the emergence of a global organism. And a critical, a critical point that you've identified is, well, it depends upon enough people waking up to the big picture, the global, uh, the um, evolutionary worldview. And for that, you know, it's a highly complex phenomenon. So first enlightenment science doesn't get anywhere near, you know, understanding this big picture. Uh, because it's not mechanistic, you can't think it through in logical, rational terms and so on. So you need higher level cognition, this cognition that's able to um, mo mentally model complex phenomenon. Um, so that's, that's the rate determining step, you know, to go back to my year 12 chemistry. Um, that's what you've got to fix. So that's what an evolutionary, that's one of the key tasks of an evolutionary activist is to uh, do what they can to spread this essential level of higher cognition throughout humanity. So that's been a major focus of mine for, uh, you know, over 20 years. So, for example, what I did in, in um, I think it was 2011, was I co-organised what I called the first planning meeting for the second enlightenment. 
Um, and that was held on a, a yacht in Sausalito, you know, in San Francisco Bay, uh, which is appropriate because all, all the cultural movements of the last hundred years start in, you know, in San Francisco. It's an extraordinary incubator of cultural uh, innovation. Um, so in any, and the, the, so who do you invite to someone like that? So there's a guy called Otto Lasky who has uh, who has uh, produced a system for scaffolding or, or that can be used for scaffolding what he calls dialectical thinking, but I would call metasystemic cognition. It's this cognition and, and there's 28 thought forms and you can talk to someone or read their books and identify what thought forms are missing, you know, and uh, then train them in the use of those missing thought forms and so you can scaffold higher cognition that way. Um, so there was him and then most of the others were people from the integral community. Uh, so Ken Wilbur, you know, wasn't there, but, but Sean Hargens was, um, and uh, Terry Patton, who had Bay Area, Bay Area integral, and so on. Anyway, broadly speaking, uh, and, and the agenda was to, you know, intentionally work out how to spread metasystemic cognition throughout the world, planning the second enlightenment. Um, basically, yeah, the Otto, as I said, has part of the, had part of the, uh, the picture. The integral people, despite their, you know, their background in developing consciousness, really didn't have much cognitively. Um, much to contribute in relation to cognitive development, which is an essential part of it. So basically, it didn't lead to much. And I said to the my co-organizer that um, uh, that the most significant thing about the first planning meeting for the second enlightenment is that it was held. You know that it, it occurred. It because it's a it's like a symbol of the fact that there are people saying we need to intentionally you know, scaffold, enhance, escalate the cognition of humanity. Um, in any event, in recent, in the last couple of years, um, I've been looking at, you know, having the second planning meeting uh, for the second enlightenment. So I've been searching the world for, you know, tools uh, for uh, scaffolders, for what I, I call an escalator. An escalator, you know, a developmental escalator, is you know, a set of practices and procedures that will take people from first enlightenment cognition to second enlightenment, from analytical rational cognition to metasystemic cognition. You know, there's lots of ways to describing it. So practically nothing has changed, you know, in the last 12 years. So, so there's a uh, there's a a lady uh, in um, Portugal who's had some workshops in the uh, in the complexity science community, which is very positive, because most of these people, most of the people with broad minds who are willing to, their minds aren't constrained by limited cognition, analytical rational cognition. Those who are willing to, you know, let their minds go where it needs to go to. Uh, you know, to see these things in the future. Most of them are, uh, in my experience, the humanities people. Uh, the, the problem that I, I think 
like for example, religious practices or spiritual practices or integralism or uh, metamodernism more recently that you, you've talked about, uh, I, I think seem like very interesting candidates for tools that that you could put your cognition through to direct it in some direction. But I mean, you, uh, the problem that I keep thinking about is that they seem kind of politically and economically um, in the dark. Like they don't seem to have too much of a political impetus in them. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's, I mean, you're really putting your finger on a number of critical issues here. So that's the critical issue. I just want to finish off with my world survey of, you know, of people who are working on something that would fit into an escalator and, and Anna, Anna Milo, you know, the, the Portuguese academic, um, she's gone and, you know, she's part of the uh, complexity science community and she's had workshops that are, you know, associated with conferences now that are explicitly designed uh, to explore uh, not the contents or the products of complexity thinking, but to explore how to create the complexity thinking that produces those products. And nearly all complexity science, you know, is focused on the products. Uh, you know, if you read any of the breathless articles saying, oh, we need to introduce the findings of complexity science into man modern management and so on. It's the products. And worse still, as Anna, Anna points out, worse still, it's not just the products they focus on, it's the fact that the products are analytical rational reductions of complexity. So, so the... Uh, so she saw, saw that, had these workshops. I've been involved, I was involved in her latest one. Hasn't got very far yet, but she's working on processes that will scaffold this. Um, very little else that I can find happening. Um, on the issue of yeah, what will drive it. So that's, that's a critical issue. That's, you know, will this move from being woo-woo to, um, you know, something that's, part of society, part of our economy that attracts the massive resources and funding needed and so on. So in essence, you know, because it's useful to go back to the first enlightenment because that, that was, you know, that's, I find very few people appreciate this, but that was a fundamental move in quantum leap in human cognition. So before the European enlightenment and the, you know, the first enlightenment, um, you know, most people were at the concrete operations stage. They were pre-modern. You know, they, the religion, religion and the injunctions of religion ruled societies in the main. There were handfuls of people who, who made it to the analytical rational level and they stood out like beacons, uh, but not necessarily recognised by the, you know, the great majority who were at a lower level. Um, but now in retrospect, they stand out like beacons. So the Greeks, you know, there's a few Greeks and so on. But there was no, there was no, um, the, you know, analytical rational cognition was as rare as hen's teeth. Um, so, but, it, and it was a quantum, quantum leap where for the first time you could plan ahead without analytical rational cognition, you can't build mental models where you can plan, you know, you can plan very far ahead at all. You can, 
so you might be able to make tools at the lower level, but you can't build machines, you know, because that involves thinking stuff through. That's that's the enormous, you know, change that occurred. So what drove it? What what drove it was it? So the philosophers. I, I always get amused when I go to talks by philosophers or or whatever, because to them, the whole history of cognition is the history of philosophers. Yeah, and they'll say, oh well, Descartes taught us how to think rationally and blah, 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 blah. No, they didn't. <laughs> no, they often came come along afterwards and, and regularise it and make it and do a metacognitive thing where they see what happened from the outside and, and can describe it, you know, at a, from an abstract level, which is all very useful and everything else. But no, they, don't, they didn't drive the actual process. So extraordinarily, what, what drove the first enlightenment was mercantilism, uh, which was undermining feudalism. Uh, and what mercantilism did was produce societies and a world in which there are enormous uh, financial benefits to be obtained by planning ahead, planning a business, organizing a business, which is like building a machine in, in your head to an extent. And so on. So, so every increment in, in cognitive capacity at the analytical rational level was rewarded by the emerging mercantile economic system. Uh, so, and that, that's what then gave rise to the intentional attempts to uh, institutionalize, you know, the scaffolding of analytical rational cognition, which is our education system. You know, it came into existence with, you know, after the European Enlightenment, and it was a, to an extent, uh, an intentional attempt to spread analytical rational cognition, first Enlightenment thinking across humanity. And it, it hasn't been very effective. And, 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 yeah, sorry, when I say it hasn't been very effective, the, you know, the, I should mention here that, you know, this developmental perspective of levels of cognition uh, is offensive to postmodernism and postmodernist sensibilities. I think a clarification could be made for the postmodernist critique because, I mean, knee jerk, I, I agree with the postmodernist critique that critique that uh, you, that there shouldn't be an ethical delineation. There shouldn't be an ethical uh, delineation between people's value in society and how they should be treated. What we're talking about here is more of a matter of uh, development and how education policy should be shaped and how uh, health practices should develop and things like that. Yeah, a good defense. So, yeah, and I agree with it. So, so the, I mean, broadly speaking, these different categories of human beings don't have different values. You know, you need a society that's a composite of, the, composite of them and that maximally uses their talents to produce, you know, the greater whole. Um, and for that, you need diversity, you know, evolvability, evolvability of any cooperative entity, any, any entity is closely related to the diversity within it. You know, its capacity to, to, to throw up novel variation and so on. So, so the, and by the way, that principle applies going upwards as well. So, so the significance of, of life on this planet 
in a universe where life has, has emerged, you know, at the global level on many other planets, the significance of life on this planet, because, you know, we'll, we'll be different. We're, we've had a different history. We've had, you know, our, the, 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 broad, uh, the broad parameters and dynamics are the same, but the detail will be different. Um, and that's our contribution. So that's our value to um, uh, other, you know, life forms that have emerged elsewhere, that we are unique. We will be unique and we have something unique to contribute. And, you know, we'll be unique in ways that, you know, might be quite different to others, but it's our uniqueness that can contribute to the, you know, the collective of global entities and the collectives of collectives of global entities and, and so on. Um, so coming back to, yeah, this difficulty that, you know, our education system uh, needs to, to directly teach analytical, rational, cognition or formal operations thinking, you need people who, who, can, who see it as object, who can stand outside their own, uh, their own thinking, who are aware of their own thinking and how it operates and can then see what they, how to scaffold that in, in other people. So they need to be at least a level ahead, which is, the, you know, people, hardly any people in the society, let alone school teachers, you know, are that level ahead that contributors. And I must mention here that, that this is, because um, it, it's too good an opportunity to miss uh, moving into to this point that, that you know, I've, my hand waving and saying, you know, you need people at the level above who can who can see their thinking as an object and so on. Um, that's where the the spiritual practices and so on come in. Come in, uh, but they need to be adapted in a particular way. Uh, they're not the spiritual practices that are handed down in lineages, and that that so those spiritual practices need to be understood through objective models that can then use those objective models shorn of their baggage, their religious spiritual baggage. Those models can be used to design new technologized, optimized practices uh, that will scaffold this, this higher cognition. So the, and the key to it, so, so the reason why the, you know, the, the key practices of, of spiritual transitions have this potential to provide a base for the new technology is that what they train, so what, what meditation trains uh, is disembedding. So, the, and you know, Keegan has the best description of this, uh, Robert Keegan uh, from Harvard, uh, and he didn't develop this very far, but his, his description is this. He said that, that development consists, uh, development occurs when what was part of the subject at a particular level becomes an object to a new higher level subject at the next level. So to, to operationalize that into you know, everyday experience, uh, it's, it's moving from, you know, from analytical rational cognition to a metacognitive perspective. So a metacognitive perspective is where uh, is a new subject that stands outside the, the thinking that you, that was part of your subject before. As, as part of your subject, 
you were embedded in it. It happened to you. It operated through you. Uh, you had that, uh, that thinking had you, you didn't have it, to use another Keegan term. So the, the metacognitive level is you can see what your previous cognition formed of, was formed of. So that's metacognition, thinking about thinking. What's more powerful is what the spiritual traditions are even better at training, which is uh, that the lower level processes become an object to awareness. So you in effect transcend thinking. So you're not thinking about thinking, which is limited because analytical rational thinking about analytical rational thinking, you know, is good, it's better than not having it. But so, so, but just awareness, awareness, uh, you know, in the witness state where, you know, to use a spiritual contemplative term, you can, you witness these processes. Now, why, why is it that witnessing so why is it that a, a, you know, a subject that's uh, not thinking, that's just pure awareness, why is that superior? You know, that's a fundamental issue. And yeah, I've written a paper on this published in the Journal of Consciousness Studies. Um, you know, why are we an organism that meditates? You know, uh, what is it about our psychological organisation that... Um, that causes us to benefit from meditation. So broadly speaking, uh, consciousness is very narrow. So it has very limited bandwidth. And this is one of the few things Western psychology discovered. That's the old Miller, I think, uh, that you, know, you can only remember six digits, four to six, whatever. Um, so consciousness is easily loaded and this is, in our everyday life, we know this, that because if we start thinking deeply about something, the world disappears. Yeah, if we think, if we're embedded in thought, um, the thought fills our consciousness, everything else that what we were conscious of before we started engaging in the thought, you know, disappears from consciousness. So this is a well, well established that consciousness is narrow bandwidth. So because it's narrow bandwidth, it's easily loaded, easily filled. The straw of consciousness is easily filled by a train of thought or by emotions. So if we're angry about something, we're not conscious of anything else. We're just angry, you know, consumed. That's the term, consumed by our anger, consumed by emotion and so on. So what meditation does is, uh, because, because this is the key point that, a strong emotion or a train of thought contracts awareness down to that, to that thought, that sequence of thinking, or to the emotion. It contracts it down while, it, while if consciousness is unloaded, as it is if you're in the present, um, then un, you have uncontracted awareness and you're aware of, you know, you're, you're, you rest in spacious awareness. Awareness, awareness is spacious. Um, so you meditate, do you, by the way? Or? Uh, yes, I do. Right, okay. So I've never met anyone who's, who's started meditation who isn't grateful that they did. So, yeah. and the I, I, I've struck, like, I've had 
uh, I don't think I abide by a strict routine or a strict style of meditation. Uh, I've been trying a few, but more or less are just sitting there and trying to empty your mind, trying to empty your mind. Yeah. So the, so the essence of meditation uh, is that, you know, you, you try and, you know, you, when you start, you go in a darkened room, minimal distractions, and you sit there and, and when you find you're embedded in thinking, you know, you start thinking about what you're going to do next and blah, 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 blah. This isn't working, you know, what the hell? You know, you, all those thoughts start arising. Uh, when you notice you're embedded in thought, you move your attention gently to sensations in the body or something, something that doesn't engender further thinking and so on. And then you find you, you then a few moments later you find you're embedded in thought again and you do the same thing and same thing. Well, you might get embedded in emotion if you're an emotionally orientated person, which I'm not. Um, the so you're strengthening the muscle to disembed attention and to leave, put it in an uncontracted state. And the more you do that, the more you quieten the the more your mind quietens down, the thinking and emotion quietens down. And, you know, I find after when I started meditation, 15 minutes after I do that, there's a, some transition occurs and I'm in uncontracted awareness and it's like, you know, my awareness is solid. It's not thinking, you know, disturbing it. It's not in, you know, so that that's... And I don't know, you know, I don't know how 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 common that is in experience with other people, but that's that's it. So I I, I feel that I think I recognize that one in the moment I stop meditating. Right. Like when you come back, right. you contrast that from your earlier state, and then you realize, oh yeah, there was kind of a unity or an emptiness to that earlier state. If you're if you're having particularly particularly good right. Well, then you could go back into it. Uh, that's what I would do. But anyway, it's all about self-tinkering, self-experimentation and so on. It's, um, you know, there's no fundamental formula that works for everybody or, and, and it can't be described anyway. It can't be formularized because, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all based on your internal workings and only you know what they are and can experience them and play with them. But the... Um, so to me, the, the phrase, so I was brought up, you know, going to a Christian school and so on. So, and there's a saying, I think it comes from one of the John's Gospels, uh, that talks about uh, experiencing the peace that passes all understanding. And to me, that's, that's the state I go into with meditation. It's the peace. It's an extraordinary, you know, it's just... It's always surprising and it's the peace and it passes all understanding. You can't understand it. And if you start trying to understand you think about it, well, it's gone. But the but in any event, coming back to so that so then the key thing is, and this is where most, you know the majority of meditative practices they end, you know, when you come come out of the meditation. But no, that's so if if you if you want to use uh, this muscle you're strengthening of witnessing. If you want to use that in the service of higher cognition and higher social emotional development, 
then you need to be able to access that state in the midst of ordinary life. So the, the, the challenge becomes, how do you, you know, move from the meditation cushion to experiencing the witness state where to which your thoughts and emotions can be object? How can you do that during the day, you know, in meetings, uh, work meetings or whatever, during an argument or whatever? So right. part of the trick is to be able to do it anytime because you, because you, you won't understand how controlled you are by your likes and dislikes uh, until you act differently to them. So, yeah, so, yeah, so that's a trap. It's, it's a trap to be, to only use it to feel good because then it's in the service of the ego. And when, when the goal is to be able to stand outside, polis bolus, the ego, and interact with people and be in this witness state while you're interacting with them and so on. And Right. And I, I think even stronger, like all kinds of dynamics could pop up that could be detrimental if you're only using it for for the for the positives or the that's negative. right and and including dynamics where you're fooling yourself and so on so so an old technique was uh an old gurdjieffian technique uh george gurdjieff 100 years ago uh his key thing was waking in the midst of ordinary life so he, he was developmentally orientated uh and so on so he, he developed some practices that haven't really, um, you know, survived till today in their fully blown form, as far as I can tell. Um, so he basically, his practices involved, he said, well, you'll only find out the emotions and, and so on that control you if you'll only be able to experience them and detach from them if you do the opposite of what you normally do, if you break these rules. So, so, you know, if, if someone holds out their hand and you don't, shake, you don't shake the hand in return and you observe what happens inside you. And what you need to be able to do is, you know, you'll come up with negative feelings and you need to be able to watch those negative feelings and not be controlled by them. And then afterwards, you know, after you've done the exercise, you might apologise to the person or, or whatever. But the, um, so breaking, you know, uh, social rules, you know, is part of developing this capacity to stand outside and witness these psychological forces, emotions and thinking thought patterns that currently govern you and control your behaviour and constrain what you do. So just, just to fit that in, because that's, I, I talk about, you know, the cognitive capacity is really important, but so too is, is the capacity to be what I call a, a self-evolving organism. So the, and both of them require scaffolding and both of them require the use of practices from the, the spiritual and traditional uh, and contemplative traditions uh, that need to be adapted, need to be developed further and eventually will be in our relationship to the spiritual and contemplative traditions. They'll be technologies that have technological purposes and technological effects and intentional effects and so on. So the, the basically to achieve uh, you know, a particular goal, 
and in the case of what I'm talking about, it's evolutionary goals. You know, so, so you're an evolutionary activist and you, you want to advance the evolutionary process on Earth and you need two capacities to do it effectively. First of all, you need the cognition, which we've talked about. You need second enlightenment cognition, metastemic cognition, because you're dealing with complex phenomena. And to deal with them effectively, you need to be able to model those phenomena and use those models to test out in your head what the most effective strategies are. So metastemic cognition is needed for evolutionary strategizing. But that's, that's not enough. Um, that's you know, a significant component. The other component you need is the ability to be able to implement those strategies. So it's one thing to see the strategies, it's another to implement them. So to implement them, you know, you'll be sabotaged at every move by your existing emotional system and impulses and so on. The likelihood that what you need to do to serve future evolution, the likelihood that that will be congruent with the predispositions and emotions that were shaped by our past evolution, particularly in our tribal system, the likelihood that they'll be congruent, you know, is in, in, infinitesimal. It's like, like a group of single cells sitting around a table saying, you know, and discussing their evolutionary future. Uh, and if they, if, and someone, and a particularly smart single cell saying, oh, we need to form collectives. Yeah, you know, we need to get together and be touching one another all the time, you know, and, and yeah, embedded in our mutual excretor and so on. And the individual free living cells would say, what the hell? You know, we don't want to do that. You know, we're, we're much happier free living. You know, this is a good life we've got here. We don't want to be bound together and constrained and so on. And so at every stage in evolution, uh, organisms have their predispositions, their impulses, their likes and dislikes, so to speak, you know, to use general terms, had to change. And it'll be the same for um, our future evolution. So we will, you know, so you can come up with a grand strategy of how you individually can advance the evolutionary process, but it might entail you doing things that you aren't motivated to do. Uh, I mean, from the very simple things like you'd rather sleep in every morning than yeah, which is a big issue. For, it's not necessarily talked about that often, but for all of us individuals in this world, uh, you know, our, you know, we, we have uh, conflicts between our motiva our inbuilt motivations and what and what we want to do, our longer term goals, all the time. So, yeah. so part of being an effective human being in the world, but particularly for achieving evolutionary ends, is the ability to. Uh, move at right angles to the motivations, emotions, and so on that we inherit from our evolutionary and cultural and social past. So the it's modified by our upbringing and so on. So again, you know, the fundamental tool is to be able to stand outside these motivations and emotions, uh, observe them as they move through our body, not be bound by them, not have to act on them, but watch them dissipate. And also techniques for then finding motivation in what it is we have to do to, um, 
you know, to advance the evolutionary process. So, so I have to go through a process, you know, to motivate myself to talk to you this morning, my time, you know, this evening, your time. So, you know, I don't find it's not what I would do, you know, given my predispositions, genetic, and, you know, it's not my idea necessarily of fun, but I have to find, you know, I have to, in effect, move at right angles to those impediments and find satisfaction in, in doing this. And it hasn't been so bad, you know, they say. So again, yeah. <laughs> again, it's, yeah, standing outside. Right. So what's needed is what Gurdjieff called work on oneself. So the, you know, the, the proper uh, life lived by a human being is to maximise their potential, is continual work on oneself. So it's seeing what he, and he, he called it the machine, you know, the, seeing the machine, your body, mind. He called it machine in order to distance it and help the process of making it object. So the, it's to get to know the machine and be able to manipulate the machine so as to align its goals and so on with these longer-term political evolutionary goals or whatever. So he actually developed the term the self-evolving organism. So the self-evolving organism, to be able to evolve, you're going to be able to remake yourself. Every element of the machine, you need to be able to remake it so that you can serve the demands of future evolution because we've been made by past evolution. So, so the appropriation of spiritual practices, you know, should be designed to develop technologies that enable us to remake ourselves in these particular ways. And just sitting on the meditation cushion and, you know, following the, the untechnologized practices, you know, won't achieve that. Um, you know, often it'll achieve spiritual bypassing, or, or as I say it, it's 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 much much of it constitutes spiritual masturbation. You know, it's using these techniques for the good feelings, delinked linked from their evolutionary purpose. Um, so, so I can't emphasise more that it's yes the the spiritual and contemplative traditions are the current repositories um, of the, the best repo the repositories of the best techniques currently available for helping us to remake ourselves, but they're at a very early stage. The, their relationship to what the final technologies will be like will be as distant as distance as is folk psychology from you know scientific psychology. And that's what you'd expect because it is it's folk it's folk techniques for, for remaking ourselves yeah so, of course so that actually brings me to the sacred um so the one of the startling things that you know really impacted on me was when i read a book by a guy called roy rapaport who was there was a flowering of system science and cybernetics which is basically my intellectual background, my intellectual heritage, you know, the Macy conferences, um, 
Norbert and Wiener and, uh, and Gregory Bateson. Uh, you know, amongst them, oh, and Ashby. And Rappaport is one of them as well. So he, he came out of that and applied it to his, uh, to the understanding uh, New Guinea tribes. And New Guinea tribes are fascinating because very mountainous country. So uh, the big tribes in one valley were largely isolated from tribes in another valley and, and so on. So they, a wonderful evolutionary laboratory, you know, Margaret Mead, Bateson, many others were attracted to it and, uh, um, and studied New Guinea tribes. And what he, what he, the, the thing that hit me between the eyes that he came up with um, was that he, he identified the evolutionary purpose of the sacred. So uh, what he observed and demonstrated was that was that the the beliefs of a tribe that uh, that designed the tribe and located in a particular place and determine its fundamental social relations and so on that that those beliefs are organized in a hierarchy and at the lowest level you know, the way you cook your food and everything is at the lowest level of hierarchy and can be adapted. You know, that, that's in the profane. It can be adapted day to day, week to week or year to year or whatever. But at the highest level of the hierarchy, in this default hierarchy, uh, then your most fundamental beliefs are those that tell you who your tribe is, where it needs to live and so on. It's the one that, that locates you most fundamentally. Now, so... The, 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 the challenge facing evolution was, well, you know, people can tinker, you know, with the way they cook their food and so on. What's to stop tinkering with these most fundamental uh, principles that they don't understand? They don't have a theory. You know, they're not sociologists, anthropologists or whatever. They don't have a theory. They think it's, you know, gods or spirits or whatever that, that handed down these principles. But these principles need to be protected. You need to protect them from the tinkering and so on. Uh, and hence the category, you know, hence why human beings are an organism that has this thing called the sacred. The sacred, uh, treating things as sacred is a way of stopping them from being tinkered with by a level of cognition that's incapable of understanding them and therefore rationally you know deciding to protect them so so the, the the pertinence of that you know apart from the fact that it's a great book and and um and so on and and this default hierarchy by the way is uh is what emerged in john holland's classifier system john holland the great complexity theories probably the, the only really significant one the Santa Fe Institute's produced. Um, and his classifier system self-organised into a hierarchy. And, you know, there was nothing in the system that called it the sacred, but the, the most fundamental rules that it were then refined by lower rules in the hierarchy were what need to be protected and, and need to mutate very slowly and so on. Anyway, I won't go into more detail, but the... Um, the 
you know, a lot of the people from the humanities side, uh, from the postmodern side, you know, treat spiritual traditions as the sacred. You know, these are sacred traditions and so on, and they like to come from a lineage, you know, so um, it's almost ubiquitous that they sign up to some lineage, whether it's Buddhism or Taoism or whatever, Advaita Vedanta. Um, the, and they, they treat the traditions handed down through the lineage as sacred, not to be tinkered with, not to be treated as profane and something you can muck around with and so on. So the, so the, I, I, the archetype, the Jungian archetype, which is evolutionarily implanted that, it, that animates me, you know, I've recognised, and it's a dangerous one, is the rebel archetype. And I hate the sacred. Yeah, you know, it's in my nature to, to hate religion, hate the sacred and so on. I, I want to attack the sacred. I'm, a mute, I'm, I'm part of the mutation process that rarely arises and rarely survives. Because if you start attacking the sacred, you know, you'll, you'll be... You'll find that you know traditional tribal societies, uh, you know, aren't all kindness and light and so on. If you break the rules, you you are thrown out. You are murdered. So I attack the sacred, and and that's what has to be done to the traditions. So their sacred practices need to be technologized, need to be profanized, need to be subject to mental models that are then used to adapt them to and change their effects and enhance their effects for what we need now. So arguably the, the, um, these practices were preserved by Noah's Ark and, and what Noah's Ark was pointing to. And the Noah's Ark um, metaphor is that every part of this planet has been subject to war and destruction and so on. Uh, and any, any system of ideas that could be used to uh, enhance human effectiveness in the world would have been adopted by, you know, a side in the war and then that side would eventually lose as every side eventually did. And these practices would be, wipe, would be wiped out. So Noah's Ark is a metaphor for uh, creating little seeds that could exist across time. And that's what monasteries are in the mountains, Tibet and so on. Uh, until a, a time arose when hopefully there wasn't this continual war and destruction. And those processes could then be taken and used for what their evolutionary purpose is, which is to enhance human effectiveness in the world to enhance our ability to uh, you know, use, use an understanding of the evolutionary process to guide our social and cultural evolution and so on. So we, we're at that time where Noah's Ark has succeeded. You know, we've got these practices. They have been treated as sacred. Now it's, now it's my time, the rebel archetype, to come along and say, no, you know, the, we will appropriate these your sacred practices, we will change them, we will meddle with them, we will, you know, perpetrate violence on them with the goal 
uh, of harnessing them in service of our future evolution of greater effectiveness in the world. You need to come back to the cave, so to say. You, you need to mechanize these things eventually. Um, like, like an economist listening to this, a particularly generous economist, would say that this is all good, that making the individual better aware of the dynamics of the part, but we still don't have a mechanism that competes with market dynamics. You've just brought me back to the point that I started answering, you know, three quarters of an hour ago. Your very, your very good point about how, how do you say, you know, the evolutionary goal is to spread higher cognition and the capacity to be self-evolving, you know, across millions of humans at least, you know, a critical mass. Um, how can we do that? How can we get the resources and so on? And I went through how it was mercantilism, not philosophers, not religions, mercantilism that incentivized the development of analytical rational cognition. It drove the first enlightenment. So the what I've worked on after the first planning meeting for the second enlightenment was, was how can this be packaged? How can this this escalator be packaged in such a way that it too its spread is driven by uh, capitalism uh, driven driven by markets and so on and really it's it's spirituality per se you know hasn't been driven by markets but but the the use of it the co-option of these techniques and the refinement and of them and the technologizing of them uh, so that they increase effectiveness in the world is of enormous value in our current capitalist economy. So, um, so the, uh, at the upper levels, at the executive levels, at the CEO level of all major corporations, uh, the problems that have to be, that ideally have to be dealt with effectively by the senior executives are complex problems that are impenetrable largely to analytical rational cognition. Uh, so, you know, a major in, uh, international corporation has to deal with, you know, interacting systems of government, politics, social systems, its competitors in the market across international borders as complex as as can be, so that, so if so if you can if you can develop an escalator that moves people to metasystemic cognition, then the market will beat a path to your door. You know, it's it'll be far more uh, monetizable, monetizable, you know, than a, a new better mousetrap or a better taste in breakfast cereal, which is what gets plenty of funding in our current world. So, so it'll be, it'll, you know, currently the CEOs of major corporations are in over their heads. Um, they're cognitively incapable of dealing with the complexities. And hence the reason why many of them, if you ever encounter them, you know, wear extremely expensive suits and strut around and are super confident and a psychopathic, because they they can carry off the pretense. If they're psychopathic, they can carry off the pretense that they know what they're doing. 
a normal, you know, fully rounded human being, of which I'm not one, but, but I, I understand this, a fully rounded human being would fall on a heap. You know, they'd say, look, I can't do this. This is all bullshit. But no, psychopaths, they can, they can carry it off. But if you can actually build an escalator. So anyway, I started down that track and developed a program, which I trialled here in, in Melbourne um, and learned a lot from, which is the reason why you do a, a trial. But, but it basically, it, there was two parts of the program. One was to develop the capacity to wake up in the midst of ordinary life. That is to be present uh, in the witness state uh, in, the more, in the midst of ordinary activities. So this, the first half of the program is designed to scaffold that capacity. The second half is then to scaffold the higher cognition. So making use of that witness capacity uh, and ability to be self-evolving, to, to use that capacity to install the new um, thought processes that are needed to constitute metasystemic cognition. So what I discovered ultimately from the process was that it has to be done one-on-one. -on -one. So it, I trialled it as a group and as a group, basically because it's highly individualised, so the same reason why only you can do your own meditation, the, the, the scaffolding needed um, for any given individual uh, will be fairly unique and idiosyncratic and depends upon where they are. So you need to develop. So if you want to help scaffold a person, and the, the object is to scaffold them enough for them then to become self-scaffolding, so that they recursively self-improve themselves. So recursive self-improvement is just a fantasy in AI, but it's, but it's a reality for human beings now. Has been recursive self-improvement is what we have to do to develop ourselves and develop ourselves and develop ourselves. So, and, and the, the people who, who think that, no, that's something for AI only, are people at the analytical rational level, you know, uh, like Ray Kurzweil and so on, who, who have never developed themselves intentionally throughout their life and don't see themselves as object, you know, and don't, I'm sure, would he meditate? Well, he certainly wouldn't use meditation for developmental purposes. So, um, uh, so the so the recursive the recursive so, so this program I developed, you know, has to be individualised because you have to actually interact with the person uh, in such a way that you understand how their mind works how their current thought processes work, uh, what they're missing in terms of metasystemic cognition uh, and so on. And you have to design specific, you know, processes and exercises and you have to, you have to move their attention around by your questioning uh, and scaffold this, you know, these new thought processes. And it's an individualised process. And basically, um, it's not for me. So I'm a rebel archetype, not a, <laughs> I'm not a people person. To me, it would be hell on earth to spend, to spend the rest of my days dealing with individuals and scaffolding them. But I'm trying to promote, I'm trying to find individuals in the world who can do that. Uh, and as I said, there's the Portuguese, Ana 
Milo, you know, is developing a scaffolding process. It's moving nearer to the time where we need a, a second planning meeting for the second enlightenment. But, uh, I just come back to the startling and extraordinary thing that we're embedded in a developmental process that only completes successfully if we wake up to the nature of the process we're embedded in and intentionally go out and make sure it completes successfully. Um, that the, that realisation changes everything about being a human being. It answers you know, the most fundamental and biggest existential question of all, what should we do with our life? How should we live? Um, and, and it's enhanced if it's done consciously. So you're contributing to the advancement of the evolutionary process on this planet here and now, and you're doing extremely well. Um, the more intentional and conscious it becomes, the better. <laughs>